This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, Today we're going to talk about uh, the legacies of World War II. Uh, probably the military conflict and political and social conflict that did more to shape the 20th century than than any other conflict. We have two of the foremost experts and best teachers of the subject uh, with us. Uh, My colleagues, uh, Professor Tatiana Lichtenstein. Uh, Good morning, Tatiana. Good morning. And uh, Professor Michael Stoff. How are you, Michael? I'm well, thank you. Uh, Michael and Tatiana are also integral parts of the Normandy Scholars Program at the University of Texas. Uh, which is a program that is designed, among other things, to provide students with an immersion uh, in the history of World War II. Uh, Before we talk about the legacies of World War II, our subject for today, we have, of of course, our scene-setting poem from uh, Zachary Siri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem today? Jerusalem. Well, let's hear about Jerusalem. We are a learned species, remembering the mistakes of yesterday, so that we might learn and forever may not repeat what proceeds. And we hope that we have learned from the wars of our constant Belgiums, the careless bloody bedlams, and we have learned not to ignore the impossible seldoms, the natural forward-backward momentum. We remember, us, the newly suburban leases, but sometimes we are prone to forget, forget to pray, pray against the next mean- mainstream that is now the fray. Stay asleep, ears on full, we cannot cease, we must not go. The eternal tugboat, the boat must tow, must tow the suffering of the infant soldier's parade, the second coming of hurt of the bombs away. What is left of the spark but desolate gray, the raised villages of Vonnegut's children's crusade, is now but the dying tomb, the long lament of them. But the fire it began for today, that is much more than what we might ever know. And I sing the song of freedom and the hope of freedom. I sing, O greatest generation, O generation passed on for generations. A tree grows deep from liberty, high priestess. O Jerusalem, far ahead of my generation, I can almost touch you. I can almost reach you. I love the many references in there, including the one to Kurt Vonnegut, uh, Zachary. What, what is your poem about? My poem is really about how uh, World War II and the events leading up to World War II influenced how we conduct policy today and how we always trying to remember the mistakes that we've made in the past and how we're striving for a future that is far off but we could almost see it it's, it's aspirational but we're not there yeah. right so uh tatiana y- you study uh, the Eastern Front in Europe in particular, uh, which is an area that often Americans don't know very much much about. Uh, how does the war redefine uh, the aspirations uh, of, of that region of the world? Well, I think uh, one of the, the East, Eastern Europe was the scene setting of uh, massive campaigns of ethnic cleansing and genocide during World War II. Um, and these were... Um, uh, forces that really redefined those societies completely. There was a region that had been multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multilingual, uh, really consisting of very large multi-ethnic states for a long time, even during the interwar period when they were nominally nation right. states. Um, and the, um, both the Soviets and the Germans uh, targeted people on ethnic grounds, the Germans obviously more than the Soviets, and um, displaced dispossessed and deported, uh, murdered millions of people. And 
by creating sort of um, like dividing societies along class or ethnic lines, those divisions um, really did not disappear after World War II. They really deepened. And in many ways, what happened during the war set the stage for the organization of societies after the war. The idea of a multi-ethnic society became uh, something that wasn't realistic. Um, and that's why we, in the wake of the war, we see the displacement, the forced expulsion of millions of people with the Allied consent. As part of the, there was wild expulsions and also planned uh, deportations of millions of people to create ethnically homogeneous states. So what looked like uh, Wilsonian national self-determination in mm -hmm. the end of empire and the creation of states like uh, Poland mm -hmm. and uh, Czechoslovakia yeah. and others was actually uh, a, a forced movement of people and a homogenization of, of the region. Well, yes. uh, after World War One, the... Um, it was nation states where there was a dominant nation, but these were multi-ethnic states. Right. Like Poland, for instance, had very large minorities, uh, ethnic Poles, whatever that meant, um, uh, co constituted about 64% of the population. The rest were different minorities, including 10% Jews, but also Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Germans. And these were all citizens of this state. They had minority language rights and so right. on. Um, but during World War II, especially because, but not only because of German deepening of ethnic tension and really using ethnic tension as a pretext um, and then, you know, as a principle for reorganizing um, occupied territory according to racial lines, um, this idea that, that these groups could coexist after the war uh, became impossible. Um, and it also became a way, of course, for reordering society and putting new authorities in power. Right, right. And of course, the, the, the Holocaust was part of this. Right? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and um, uh, the, the, the murder and the dispossession of Jews and, and creating that racial hierarchy um, uh, really made it impossible to reconstitute those societies after the war. Right. Um, but but uh, the Jewish loss, the, the massive genocide, is only one part of that much broader story of displacement right. and reorganization. Right. right. Uh, Michael, how how did Americans uh, view this? Uh, for for Amer Americans, May eighth, nineteen forty five, was VE Day, right? Victory in Europe. Uh, but what Tatiana is talking about is a much more complicated uh, experience. H how did this affect Americans in Europe, at least? I think it's important to remember the degree to which American perceptions of the war were shaped by the rhetoric employed, particularly by Franklin Roosevelt. Right, right. Uh, as early as December of 1940, you know, Jeremy, because you've written about Roosevelt, uh, he talks about the United States being an arsenal of democracy. Yeah, I love that phrase. Uh, and the idea here is in some way to overcome the isolationists by turning the United States into the quartermaster of the Allies without having the United States yet involved in the war. Lend-Lease is the follow-up here, and uh, that occurs, oh, four months after Roosevelt gives this uh, Arsenal for Democracy speech in 1940. The Atlantic Charter soon follows, and it talks quite openly about, and I quote here, respect for the rights of all people to choose the form of government under which they will live. This a war aim. And, and you can see those war aims woven into the peace uh, treaties. Yes. Uh, Japan and Germany are both told that they will ultimately choose the form of government that their people wish to choose. So you have uh, already uh, a, a um, rhetorical, and words matter, 
uh, a rhetorical set of images that Americans believe, at least, they're fighting for. Now, of course, on the battlefield, um, men are fighting to uh, to stay alive right. and to keep right. their friends alive. But in the larger sense, this war is already being depicted before the United States enters it as a war to uh, to to extend democracy uh, and to preserve it, to keep it safe. Uh, after the war, of course, in the reconstruction and occupation of Japan and Germany, democracy is implanted uh, in countries that do not have a long history of, of democracy. And that is perhaps, uh, I think, the signal achievement of the early post-war right. period. And th- this takes time. So, for example, when we saw policymakers comparing the Iraq War and the aftermath to World War II right. and Japan and Germany, you had very different circumstances here and a, largely an ignorance of, of history. In Japan, uh, it was seven years before the United States left, having created institutions that, that survived to this day. In Germany, 10 years before West Germany becomes uh, an independent nation. Right. So these things take take a great deal of time. I think Americans were enormously patient in the post-war period. They were, of course, animated by a growing Cold War, which in effect replaced the Second World War and the demons of Nazism with what uh, what at least one historian has called red fascism, right. Mm-hmm. Right. the idea that that uh, that communism now was new was really the new totalitarian slash fascist threat, and it's in the aftermath of the war that this notion of democracy really is extended, in part uh, as Tatiana was talking about, in part having to do with with the Holocaust and the violations of human rights. We get in the aftermath of the war the creation of new institutions designed to protect human rights, among other things, the UN, which, by the way, never mentions the word democracy in its charter, but does uh, echo um, the we the people claim uh, of the early days of of the American Republic, suggesting, of course, that democracy is, is, is is, is at least in part a human right. And we get that overtly in the uh, uh, the uh, uh, Universal Declaration of Human right, Rights, of which course. clearly says uh, that uh, that um, the 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 world now has as a human right democracy, the right of people to express not only their thoughts freely, but to choose the form of government that they will now have as a human right. That's extraordinary. I, I'm so glad you brought up uh, the, the UN Declaration, or the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, 1948, l- largely written, in fact, by Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, she certainly was in charge. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, how do we understand, Michael, the, the relationship between the brutality and destruction uh, and continued displacement uh, that that Tatiana was talking about, and that you've written about uh, with regard to the atomic bombings of of Japan, um, and this emphasis upon human rights and new institutions is, is that a reaction? Uh, how do how did Americans and Europeans and others conceive of building a new world uh, in the context of of this destruction? It's hard for us to imagine in our own world today. I guess it depends on which Europeans and which Americans you're looking at. There were those who believed that the war signaled uh, the end of the old regime 
and a new day. Year zero, many of them right. called it, no uh, believing optimi optimistically that this would be a new Periclean age, mm. that mm. that the disaster of the war, the horrors of the war, would inevitably be like Armageddon and lead to a, a new age. It, it, it is out of that hope and, of course, the pessimism that followed in seeing exactly what Tatiana is describing, that someone like George Orwell ends up writing 1984, right. which mm -hmm. is published in 1948, a dystopian version of the hopes that many people had, but also a version of reality that, that matched reality, mm -hmm. particularly in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, and increasingly in Asia as well. Mm -hmm. Tatiana, do you see a, a major difference in the way uh, people in your region of the world uh, saw the end of the war and the way Americans and West European allies might have seen the end of the war? Well, I think um, it's sort of, again, it depends on who we're talking right. about. I think very much the, the governments in exile, for instance, uh, use this rhetoric of democracy and of choosing government and the kind of society to actually advance, for instance, in Czechoslovakia, the idea of ethnic cleansing after the war. Um, so they they use that, the governments in exile as and, well. And the argument was, th th this is what people want. This, this is, is what, what the majority exactly, this wants. This is what, what we, we need to... Uh, undo what was done after World War One, which wasn't the correct kind of assembly of states. Right. Um, so, th so that's that's one element. But I think very much so this idea that this was a new beginning, mm -hmm. um, that really um, things that could not be done in the interwar period didn't reach kind of fruition. Um, could be now done sort of all more, more radically almost, and that includes the ethnic cleansing that society could simply be reorganized and then we can look towards a future of peace. And that includes, and this is before the communist takeover, right after the war, um, that the state begins to nationalize major industries. Mm. Um, so really sort of taking charge. Um, and this happens in that those democratic, if you will, you know, rebuilding years just after in some states, not all states in Eastern Europe. But I think this idea of a totally reorganized society, and I think many people also experienced that because right. they were moved by their governments. Right. Um, that this was kind of a new beginning. And, you know, one has to remember that, uh, yes, there was Soviet imposition of power, but in a place like, for instance, Czechoslovakia, there's huge popular support for communism. Sure, sure, sure. especially in the first uh, months and yeah, years after absolutely. the war. So, uh, Tatiana, one of the, the uh, topics that often comes up is the creation of social democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Michael was referring to this in a way already with the, the Atlantic Charter, mm -hmm. which in a certain way lays out a new deal for the world in, mm -hmm. in FDR's terms. It, is it is it fair to talk about, in addition to the ethnic cleansing, the, the post-war period, opening uh, a moment when there's a, a, a perception that the state will do more to protect the welfare of Abs citizens? Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's both in Eastern and Western Europe, um, that the state is going to uh, take charge also of stability for citizens and, and, and building kind of a new society. Um, and also the state taking charge of social mobility, really, mm. and reorganizing mm -hmm. society. I have to remember some of these classes, uh, sorry, countries lost the entire middle class, right? right? Uh, in places where class and ethnicity really intersected, um, such as Poland, uh, lost an enormous amount of their middle class because of the um, murder of Jews. Right. Um, so, so the reorganization of society and this kind of the social mobility actually began during the war, but it's really something that is encouraged in, in different ways by this, the new socialist regimes as Interesting. well. Interesting. Michael, is it fair to talk about social democracy as an outcome of the war for the United States also? 
I think the record of the United States is mixed uh, on the home front, to be sure. Uh, it, it is uh, almost Janus-faced. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the one hand, we find during war, when democracies are notoriously bad at organizing themselves, when authoritarian governments enjoy um, newfound vitality precisely because they can deliver quickly mm-hmm. in wartime, the American democracy at home survives. Electoral politics continues as usual, uh, and um, we, we don't see any major breaks in that democratic process. On the other hand, there are groups that don't fully participate in that in that democracy, African Americans, mm-hmm. uh, Latinos, for example. And we also see a, a plethora of race riots, uh, including the famous uh, uh, servicemen's riot in, in Los Angeles. And we see the internment of Japanese Americans. So you, on the one hand, you see the continuation of uh, 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 democracy. On the other hand, you see the continuation of the weaknesses of American democracy. Right. That's a that's a great uh, point. I'm so glad you brought that up. And in fact, we have a student question that follows perfectly from that. Uh, Vivian Lowe uh, wants to know about how we can uh, not simply uh, reenact the greatest generation story, but also understand and learn from these limitations at the time. Can we hear Vivian's question? What are some lessons we can learn from the violations of democracy during World War II, for example, Japanese internment, to reduce the chances of those acts recurring in current or future conflicts? Michael? Well, I think one of the things that's absolutely critical uh, in instances like uh, Japanese internment is presidential leadership. And and I think here is uh, one area where Franklin Roosevelt failed failed to take the leadership. And here's one instance uh, much later in which uh, George W. Bush does take yes. that leadership step, mm-hmm. does say, for example, that Muslims are not our mm-hmm. enemies in the wake of 9-11. That had a remarkably calming effect. That's not to say there were no incidences mm-hmm. uh, of discrimination and even violence mm-hmm. against Muslims, but it does suggest that leadership at the pinnacle makes a huge difference. And I think that you place the right person at the top and you can do a great deal uh, to uh, obviate some of the problems that inevitably occur in war when you are dealing with an enemy who all too often is demonized. Right. Right. One can say one of the most important roles of a leader is to anticipate uh, the mistakes people are likely to make in certain circumstances. Tatiana, the phrase never again is is also used in, in Eastern Europe and elsewhere. What does it mean in that context? Well, um Never again. Well, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I want to say um, when we talked about social democracy, I think it's important just to remember for Eastern Europe that there were no democratic states after 848, that very much the rhetoric was one of people's democracies, but they are not democracies. So that's that's important to remember. It's a major difference. Actually, one thing I've noticed Mm -hmm. is that if a country calls itself a people's democracy, they're likely not that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I think think never again in Eastern Europe in part meant... um, Stability, right? Okay. Stability and uh, the the war there was uh, massively destructed in a way that few Americans can imagine. Um, uh, 20% of the population being lost, uh, dead in the war is, is not uncommon. Um, so it's, it's um, that kind of destruction... Uh, 
so not just of the Jewish people, but of many other peoples as well. Um, that is really key. I think when I was thinking about this question, I thought one of the things to keep in mind is this way in which when these instances happen, sort of after uh, the Japanese internment, the ki- how, how quickly the labeling of a group happens, right? And the distrust yes. between neighbors begin. And once, and you don't need all neighbors to fight each other, but once you have a few people right. willing to commit violence, um, it becomes very hard to restore trust among communities. That's right. Um, That's right. That's right. Zachary, you have a question? Yeah, I was wondering uh, how we, how do you think we get away from this sort of idea of, of hero worshipping many of those who fought in World War II, but also the the actions of of the United States in World War II. How do we put a broader context to that mm-hmm. uh, in our national conversation? Great question. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the ways we, we get away from hero worshipping is actually to speak to the people whom we label heroes mm-hmm. because they will be among the very first to tell you that mm-hmm. they are not, mm-hmm. uh, that what they did in the war was largely an effort to survive in that war and that war is, is a horror. Uh, and, and very often you will hear veterans say, as I have many times, that the real heroes are not here with us today. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, those of us who survived are not real heroes. Uh, so I, I think that's a very dangerous kind of labeling that, that goes on because it elevates war to this heroic conflict. Uh, and war is much worse than mm-hmm. that. Um, how we put it in the proper context? Um Come to Tatiana's class. Come to my <laughs> class. In other words, I have a great deal of faith in, in education, mm-hmm. uh, properly taught. And this, of course, brings us, if you'd like to discuss Please. it, to the Normandy Scholar Program Please. in Please, World Ma- War II. Please, Michael. Uh, w- we created this program here at the university some 30 years ago in an effort to teach students about the Second World War in a five-course sequence that really broadens the context uh, there are five professors who teach in it. Tatiana teaches Poland and, mm-hmm. the, and the Holocaust. I teach the United States. Uh, in World War II, we have other professors teaching Germany and, 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 and the Soviet Union. And France. And, uh, and France as well. Uh, and, and so uh, we give a broader context through the interplay of these, of, these, of these courses. And then, of course, in the last three weeks of the program, we take students to Europe. And they get to be there, to be at the places that they've studied for the entire semester. And there is something powerful, moving, and contextualizing in actually going to see uh, uh, Maidanek, mm-hmm. uh, one of the one of the death camps, or walking Omaha Beach, and then up to the American cemetery, and then compare that to the German cemetery. These are very powerful experiences that I think add depth and texture uh, to to learning about the Second World War. Not everybody, of course, can go to Europe. Not everybody <clears throat> can be part of the Normandy Scholar Program. But I think there are ways, uh, uh, many ways, in fact, of, of making the war come alive for students, not least 
through film. Yes. Mm-hmm. Both archival yes. film and yes. feature film and documentaries, yes. which we make great use of mm-hmm. in the uh, Normandy Scholar Program. Well, what you do with that program is extraordinary. Tatiana. Yeah, can I just, since we are uh, speaking on May 7th, uh, I think it's important <laughs> to remember when we talk about war that the wounds of war do not end when the peace treaty or the unconditional surrender happens, right? Uh, they're very deep wounds that last for years, sometimes for generations, both in the people who fought in the wars, but also the people who lived under occupation, the societies that come after that try to use history, as many of us do, or almost all societies do, as a way to inform identities and to rebuild, to build models for, for current generations. Um, Eastern Europe is a place where this memory could not be dealt with openly for uh, almost two generations after the war. And it's a very painful discussion that has happened in the last 20 years. It's a fruitful one, just like looking at the dark past in the United States. It's a very useful and, and productive yes. process, but it's difficult. So it is in Eastern Europe as well. Um, I, and, yeah. and I really want to underscore that point, especially for American listeners, Tatiana. Uh, here we are 74 years since the end of the mm-hmm. war. And as, as you and Michael have pointed out, it, it's so deeply relevant for our society. There is a tendency, particularly Americans have, to assume a war ends when the peace treaty yes. is signed. And that's the way, of course, uh, not Michael's textbook, but most textbooks uh, lay things out. Uh, and as we've learned in Iraq, and as mm-hmm. we learned at the end Absolutely. of World War II, the, the last day of battle is, is only the midway point, yes. if even that, in the longer struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's so important for us. And, and some nations do a better job of dealing with their past than others. Yes. I think Germany has done a rather better job, for example, than Japan has. Uh, Japan is still wrestling with its role in, in that war and, and still unable to take, in my view at least, full responsibility for some of the things that uh, Japanese soldiers and civilian leaders did during that. And as Tatiana was speaking about Eastern Europe, this has a deep effect upon East Asia today in relations mm-hmm. between Japan and North and South Korea Absolutely. and China. Th- this takes us to uh, our second student question, uh, which really brings us to uh, what we want to spend the last couple of minutes on. How do we move forward? How do we use these lessons going forward? Miranda Rodriguez uh, has a question about lessons for college students today. Um, let's hear Miranda. What are some lessons we as college students can learn from World War II in order to prevent this event from repeating? So, so Tatiana, in a world today that seems uh, so eerily similar to the early Mm -hmm. 20th century, uh, with uh, many uh, powers, many large countries more and more at odds with one another, with uh, rising hatred uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, disputes over areas that could easily explode into Mm -hmm. war, uh, what are some lessons we need to take from World War II for today? I I feel so strongly that caution, just when we, I suppose Zach was saying about this hero worship, but this sort of uh, idealizing war as a, a solution, I think it's just so important to back off that. Yes. And I think any student who enters a history class will really see that, or a literature class on war literature will see that that is, that is uh, that's not, it's, it sounds good, politicians do it all the time, it sounds like a quick fix. But it is uh, so destructive, and we, that should really be the last last uh, resort. Yeah, militarism is the last house of yeah. scoundrels, right? Yeah. <laughs> Michael? I would add uh, two things in particular. 
Uh, one is uh, w when powerful nations abandon their international responsibilities mm -hmm. and recede into what in the 1930s was called uh, isolationism mm -hmm. uh, uh, under the title of America First. Uh, in the case of the United States, we, we risk far too much. Yes. National self-interest is never going to be abandoned. But we must also realize that there are international responsibilities as well. And you can see that mixture of idealism, international responsibilities, and realism, national self-interest, unfolding in the post-war period when, when we have one of the most fertile periods in, in American uh, diplomatic history. Uh, we can see uh, very shortly after the war, the Truman Doctrine comes along in which Truman says, we will assist free people. Uh, fighting uh, totalitarianism wherever. There are problems with that, to be sure. But it suggests a new stance on the part of the United States. And this is followed up very quickly by the Marshall Plan right. and by NATO. Those are very important, it seems to me, inst international institutions, which, among other things, help to achieve a certain stability in the world, a necessary precondition to avoiding war. The second thing I, I would point uh, to 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 our students, point out to our students, is that um, when nations abandon the rule of law, when nations abandon the rule of law, they risk uh, uh, t terrible consequences. Uh, and you can see that happening in, in Germany, for example, and, and on occasion in the United States as well. Uh, and, and I think uh, paying close attention to the rule of law is absolutely essential in avoiding war. So, so Zachary, it seems to me uh, what Tatiana and Michael have, have made clear to us is the horror of the war produced a lot of negative outcomes, uh, particularly in displaced populations, continued suffering, but also a set of lessons, uh, lessons about avoiding war, anti-militarism. Uh, we have strong peace movements in all of these societies after World War II. One could argue we don't have a third world war because of the memory of World War II. And, and Michael's, uh, I think, beautifully eloquent point at the end about the rule of law and the importance of law for stability and managing even the powerful uh, to prevent themselves from going to war. I, is your generation learning these lessons? Um, I actually think that that uh, that it's really a struggle to for to to teach uh, children about these lessons because I see that all around us, even a lot, even more in adult populations, that uh, that people are getting obsessed with battles and details and not really looking at the broader picture and studying the effects. And often when I when history is taught in the classroom, it's at least in, in middle school and elementary school, it's too much focused on the battles and on a very one-sided view of good versus evil. And I think that that's really dangerous if we want to avoid war. Yeah, I think one of the one of the lessons of today is that we have to go back to this history and that we can get beyond the stereotypes. It it doesn't take that much work because there are lots of great sources around us. Uh, we just have to move beyond the obvious uh, good versus uh, evil. And there are a lot of good things uh, that the United States and other countries did in World War II, but there are a lot of difficult legacies. And as Tatiana said so eloquently, having these difficult conversations, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's, in Michael's terms, what leadership is all about. Right. I think, too, Jeremy, I've done now two of these um, podcasts with you. And one of the things that comes across again and again and again 
is the importance of knowing history. Uh, As my old mentor, John Blum, used to say, uh, you can't tell where you're going unless you know where you've been. That's right. That's absolutely right. And uh, any mention of John Blum (laughs) (laughs) makes for a a wise experience. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Tatiana and Michael, thank, thank you, you Z- thank you, Zachary, thank you. and uh, thank you for enjo- joining us, our listeners, for this discussion of World War II, and this is democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.